Audi. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Our guest this episode is one of the most famous women on UK TV and at the helm of one of our most popular daytime TV shows, the Glasgow girl with the accent that no one can quite place. She grew up on a sugarcane plantation in the Caribbean, has hitched hikes through remote forests in Kenya and is so well-travelled she started her career as a travel writer. I'm delighted to have Loose Women's Andrea McLean on the Big Travel Podcast. in the Daily Mirror actually that you'd just come back from a girls weekend in Ibiza which sounded amazing and the Daily Mirror told me that you relaxed at a luxury health and fitness retreat sunbathed on the beach and took part in plenty of mum dancing which sounds amazing yeah it's a perfect mums do Ibiza moment the whole thing about the Ibiza holiday was great because it, it started last year when one of the, the team behind the scenes at Loose Women said uh, oh, I've seen this this whole thing of going to Ibiza but doing it sort of healthily do you fancy coming aboard so a few of us went and we had a lovely time and it was great. And then we thought we'll do it again this year. But this year we didn't do it, I'd say, quite as strictly. It wasn't a strictly healthy retreat type experience. But for us it was perfect. It was a great balance of during the day we could do sort of yoga in the morning and fitness classes and all this sort of thing. It was all in a villa. There were 13 of us. Obviously people only uh, sort of showed the on-screen women who, who went away. But actually it was some of the team behind the scenes and also a load of our friends as well. And we had exactly the right mixture of, we were, I like to call it mother flossing, because we were flossing in true mum style, i.e. really badly. And we did that round the pool. Uh, I had a lot of t-shirts made up for us, a bit like kind of mums on tour, but I just called us all mother flossers. And so I got everybody the t-shirts <laughs> and everyone was, you know, sort of doing that. Then I texted a friend who lives out there part time. He took us out a couple of the nights so it was great, really good, and really nice to spend quality time with friends as well. It's important, I think, when you're working really hard and when you're a parent to have those weekends if you can. And it, actually, they feel like a lot longer than they are yeah. because you're just you're not rushing around and doing all that busy stuff. You've got no kids to look after. I did a weekend recently with my friends, just two nights in Spain, but. We got to get up at three o'clock in the morning, but it didn't matter because we weren't getting like small people ready and we had a bit of Prosecco at the airport. It was lovely. <laughs> Do you know, even traveling, because our, our flight when we, when we headed out, we had to be at the airport for half past three. In the old days, I'd have just stayed up, you know, I'd have just, I was thinking about eight o'clock, oh, I better get to bed so that I can at least get some kind of shut eye. But yeah, we had a cheeky little drink on the plane on the way over. The fact that you're not even traveling with your kids 
instantly felt like a holiday. For most of us, we slept during the day because we were up chatting during the night. It was like proper girly, girly time, if, if that makes sense. And because we didn't have to look after anyone else and people were sort of looking after us because there was somebody there to cook food and we didn't have to think about what we we're doing. We just went, ah, it was great. So tell, for the people, this is a very international podcast. We've got listeners in just over 80 countries, I think 81 and counting at the moment around the world. Uh, tell people what is Loose Women. Okay, well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Andrea McLean, and I am the host of a program called Loose Women. It's a, it's a lunchtime chat show that goes out on ITV here in the UK. And what it is, is it's a panel show where, basically for me, my job is like herding toddlers. It's like trying to get everyone to behave and also not crash off air. And what my job is, is to encourage the, the three other panelists that we've got on the show to basically give their opinions on lots of different subjects that we'll talk about during the day. So whereas a lot of different programs will cover news items and they'll report on them in a journalistic way, we talk about them in a water cooler kind of way, in a very, we have a very real reaction to something that is happening of the, of the moment. So we're not experts, but we're, we're what we are is women of various ages, various experiences, various political beliefs, various uh, different enthusiasms. And what that does is it sparks really lively debate. And one of the things that's so great about the show is that we will properly, properly debate. And when I say debate, there, there will be people talking over each other and getting very, very, shall I use the word, enthusiastic about their imp opinions. Uh, and then I will kind of gather it all together throw to an ad break and then we literally sit back in the chair and go oh, that was great you were amazing you were so angry that was fantastic are you all friends afterwards we're all friends. Or didn't sort of last yeah, the argument yeah. last no argument. even though we will very very much disagree with what somebody has said we we genuinely like each other and for me when i joined the show 11 years ago i'd I'd never had a friendship group like that because normally when you, you, you're with your group of friends, it's kind of like an echo chamber because you tend to surround yourself with people who feel the same way as you. And all you do is sort of reinforce your own views and think you're rather marvelous. And then suddenly I was thrown into this arena where there's these women who will literally say, well, that's the biggest load of rubbish I've ever heard. And you think, uh, oh, how can you On possibly <laughs> think that? But, 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 but what? My friends all think I'm right. And what it does is it makes you raise your game and it makes you think, well, why do I think like this? And it forces you to back it up. And what's wonderful, and it's happened many times and it's happened to all of us at some point, is that we will really strongly go in thinking X and halfway through we will think, do you know what, you're right, I now think Y. And that's the point of debate. And one of the things I find frustrating is that people don't see that in loose women. People will say, oh, it's just a show where women have a good old rant. We're not ranting, we're actually debating. And if you compare Lucerman to, say, Question Time, even Prime Minister's Question Time, where absolutely nobody is paying any attention to what anybody else is doing, all they're doing is waiting for them to finish talking so they can get their point, that's not what debate and discussion is. Debate and discussion is using your one mouth and your two ears. 
and you're listening to what the other person is saying, you're making an informed decision as to whether you think they're right or, or wrong, and then you're giving your informed decision. Now, you can do that with passion, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be rude. But what it does mean is you have to listen to what the other person is saying. And I actually think that the government and various organizations and even people down the pub should do it how loose women do it. I think it's because we need more women in the government. I agree. Because it's a very female trait to be that empathetic. Empathetic, yeah, 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 definitely. You also, on the show, you you give a lot of yourselves. You're very, you're, you don't hide behind a facade. You're who you are and you talk very openly about the things you go through and I absolutely love that. And that's how we met is that I came on to the show to talk about the film that I, I made with my miscarriages. I think that's very relevant, relevant to the book that you've got out at the moment. I want to talk about your book in a sec. However, first of all, I wanted to pick up on your beautiful accent. And this is why you're absolutely perfect for a travel podcast and a travel show, is that one, you grew up in Trinidad and Tobago, and two, one of your first jobs was as a travel writer. But let's go back to Trinidad. Tell me, what was that like? How did it come about? Um, I grew up in... Trinidad and Tobago on a sugar plantation, which is not something that a girl from Glasgow normally does. How it came about was my my dad left school at 15 with no qualifications and he got an apprenticeship working in a factory making machinery for factories scattered all around the world. Him and my mum had been together from 15 and 16, they'd just got married, and then he was given the opportunity to basically take some of this uh, machinery that he'd helped make and install it in a factory in the Caribbean. This is a man from the Gorbals in Glasgow who had never been abroad before, so this was a huge deal. The contract was for 18 months and they stayed for 18 years. That's how much they loved Trinidad. Now, when people think of growing up on a sugar plantation, you might think of that kind of old colonial lifestyle. But by the time we got there, at least by the time I was born, those were bygone days. It wasn't like that. It was it was very much a, a somewhere that you go to go to work. The colonial era had, had had long had long gone. For me, I moved around a lot. So although the bulk of my years were in Trinidad and Tobago, I actually I spent a year in the Philippines. We felt a year in Scotland. We had spent time in Bromley in Kent. We also moved around different parts of Trinidad. When I think of my childhood, it is Trinidad and Tobago. I had the best upbringing. I, it brings a smile to my face when I think of Trinidad. Whenever I hear the Trinidad accent, I go straight back, and honest to God, if there was a Trini in the room now, I go straight back to talking in the Trini accent. I, if I pass a roti shop, I have to stop by and get myself some curry goat. I, I do feel, even though I am Scottish, I live in England, but my heart and my soul has a huge place for Trinidad and Tobago. I, I take my kids now to Notting Hill Carnival in London because I've never been back to Trinidad. There's something that's no. so fascinating. Why not? Because I'm saving it. I'm saving it until my kids are old enough to understand what I'm talking about. Because although uh, I say, you know, mommy likes rum punch and she grew up in Trinidad and Tobago, they don't get it yet. I want to take them back and show them it's part of my heritage. So while Scotland is very much part of my heritage, my parents are Scottish, they sound like they left two minutes ago, and all my family are up in Scotland, and we visit there regularly. There's a big chunk of my life that was spent in the West Indies. So I want them to be of an age where I can take them around and go, this is part of me. This is why I dance the way I dance. This is why I, I like soca. 
you know, I just feel that they need to be of an age where they can they can appreciate it. So what was it like? I mean, who were your who were your friends? What did you eat? Where did you go to school? When I was younger, uh, I went I went to the company school, which was very small. They're very very small classes because it was for people who who you know work work for the company my dad worked for. And then when I was 11, I set my 11 plus, the same as anybody else in, in Trinidad does. And I got accepted into St. Joseph's Convent in San Fernando. I loved my, my primary school years. They were great. They were the same as everybody else's primary school years. But I genuinely loved St. Joseph's Convent. For me, there was something so wonderful about joining a school at the same time as everybody else. Because I'd moved around so much, I was always the new girl. And this did carry on for a little while because I did leave school at nearly 15 and went through the whole new girl thing back in the UK but for me I, I joined I became a convent girl at the same time as everybody else what was interesting I was the only white girl in my class all my friends were either they were black Indian mixed race Chinese um, of all different religious denominations even though it was a Catholic convent school there was no question of race color creed religion being anything of an issue and because Trinidad is such a melting pot of, of different types of, uh, there's so many different reasons why people went to Trinidad and people have emigrated there. People, some of their origins were through slavery, some were through colonialization. So, and everybody is kind of integrated. So for me, going and joining a school and being the only white girl in the class, I was, I was just a girl. So it made, it genuinely made no difference. And what was fascinating for me was I was just a Trini girl who happened to be the color that I that I was. And the only time that I ever felt truly different was returning back to the UK. And the UK was supposed to be my home. It must have been such a culture shock for you. You're in the Caribbean, there's beautiful, I'm assuming, white sands. I've been to a, a sugar plantation in St. Lucia, not in Trinidad, but I know exactly what that is going to look like. A beautiful, beautiful place, very lush and green, beautiful beaches and seas. And then you come back to England when you're 15, yeah. which is a huge time to be to have that upheaval when you're a teenage girl. Mm. I imagine in some ways it was quite exciting, was it? No, no, I wasn't happy. I really wasn't very happy about it. I understood why we were doing it because uh, my, my dad, understandably and probably correctly, thought I want my kids to do their O-levels as it was then back in the UK because he, he just felt that that was the right thing to do. So he brought me back in time for, in those days it was the fourth year. I don't even know what it would be now. I, I was it was the year that you choose your GCSE options. So that, I that year, I, I have no, I have no, no idea I was what. Fourth year. <laughs> so that would be year 10, I suppose, nine or 10. All of a sudden, considering I was the same color as everybody in my class for the first time, I'd never had that in any of my schooling life. I was the outsider. On my first day at school, the, the form teacher, basically sitting there bored reading off the register, you know, in, in the fourth year, he was reading out you, whether you walked to school, whether you caught the bus, or whether your parents gave you a lift into school. And he, you know, he'd read out a name, and they go, walking, read out a name, bus, go to my name, Andrea McLean, and I said, my mummy dropped me. <laughs> and literally, the whole class just stopped. And who is she? What the hell is this? And I can remember the teacher just slowly raised his head, and his eyes looked around like, who has said this? It didn't dawn on me that it was my accent. I thought I'd given the wrong answer. And I sort of looked at him and he said, 
what did you say? And I said, my mommy dropped me. And he said, from a cliff? And everybody laughed and they were all laughing at me. And I genuinely had no idea why. And I was thinking, should I walk? What's, what's wrong? What's wrong? And then you had to say, pack lunch, school dinners, you know, whatever. And I, he said, Andrew McLean. And I said, sandwiches. Again, the whole class just stopped. That was my first day at school in the UK. And I went home. And at the time, everyone in the Caribbean, you call your parents mummy and daddy until the day you die. And all your mummies and daddy's friends are called aunties and uncles. It, it's very like that. And I went home and I said, mummy, I can't talk like this anymore. Everybody laughing at me at school. And I had to stop it like that overnight. And the accent that I have now is one that I have trained myself to have so that I don't talk with a Caribbean slash Scottish accent. So when, you, when you've had a few drinks, does it all come right back? Funny enough, it does. It, it does. It, it's more if it's really strange. If I still have Trini friends, I keep in touch with my Trini friends. So although I've never been back, I see them when they come over and we're on Facebook and all, all this, sort of, this sort of thing. And so I keep in touch that way. My kids find it really strange that the second I'm chatting to them, I'm like, kyan, 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 and I start talking like that. And they're looking at me like, why are you talking like this? <laughs> but what's interesting is whenever I go up to Scotland, my Scottish accent comes out. So I'm a, I'm a real hybrid of sort of Scottish, Trinidadian, English. I would love to do that Eliza Doolittle thing where, do you remember there's a bit in Eliza Doolittle, My Fair Lady, where there's a, a man who can pinpoint any accent in the world and say where they're from. I would love to have someone who didn't know my background listen to me and try and figure it out because I bet I would win. Well, I think people do that every day when they see you on the TV. They think, oh, is she Irish? Is she yeah. American? You know, what's, I, it's, you sound like someone who's travelled a lot. And yeah. actually you have travelled a lot. I have travelled so. a lot and I've picked up bits of everything. So you became a travel writer at some point. Tell me, tell me about that. Basically, I became a travel writer kind of by osmosis, I suppose is the best way to describe it. I've always wanted to be a journalist. Since I was probably 10, 11 years old, I started writing and I've never stopped. It used to be short stories and poems and all the normal things that you do in primary school. Then when I got to secondary school and after I'd ditched the accent and tried to become normal, <laughs> I, I was bullied and part of the thing I was bullied for was being different and I understand that and I appreciate it now with, with the benefit of adult hindsight but it was a tricky time. So I started writing about what it felt like and I wrote this short story and at the time my favourite magazine was called Just Seventeen. Oh, it doesn't even too. exist anymore. So I sent off this story and it was called Will to Win and it was it was a story about someone being bullied. And I got a letter back saying, thank you very much, we'd love to publish your story. And it became a double page spread in a national magazine. And I, I actually wrote it under a different name because I didn't want the girls at school to know it was me. But that gave me a taste of what it was like to actually be published. So then I went to the local newspaper and I just said, right, I'd like to do work experience for you. When I did that, I just said, right, can I come in as and when? And so I kind of carried that on. Then I, the degree that I did was history, politics, and international relations because it was something that interested me because of my upbringing. And I majored in colonial history. So my, my final degree was in modern Indian, South African, and gosh, I can't even remember that, and East African history. The reason I did that degree is because I wanted to be a journalist. I was so put off by how pushy everybody was that wanted to be a journalist that I thought, I don't think I'm ready to do this yet. So I took a year out while I sort of figured what it was that I wanted to do. I worked 
For three jobs for a year, I worked in an office, a shop and a pub seven days a week for a year, saved up all my money and went backpacking. Now, to put this into context, this was proper backpacking. The mobile phones hadn't been invented yet. The internet wasn't even a twinkle in anybody's eye. So when you went backpacking, you went off the grid. I headed off with my boyfriend at the time. We caught an Aeroflot flight to Delhi. We arrived and we lived off the peanuts that we'd got off the plane for the first 48 hours because I was too scared to eat anything because I thought, oh, what is this? Where am I? Where am I? India is a major culture shock it, like that. It is. And also I thought, well, I've traveled. I can do this. And I realized I'd never travel without my parents. It's a very different thing. And then once I got into my stride, I loved it. And I kept a very, very detailed diary of because I've always written about everything that I've gone through. And, but also, interestingly, I kept sort of leaflets of everywhere that we went. So I had prices on, information and all this sort of stuff. And what I was doing was everything that I was collecting, because I filled book upon book of, of entries about everything that I'd done. It was very detailed. And I just kept posting them home. And when I got back, my parents at this point decided to move to Africa. So I was then, that's a whole other story, which I will <laughs> fill you in on. I then was broke, so I got a job in a shop. Again, pestered the local, it was a different local paper this time, and said, can I write for you? I've got all this information about traveling. Can I be your travel writer? So for 15 pounds per article, and they were full page articles, I provided all the pictures, all the content, everything else. And for about a year, I provided this newspaper with these amazing travel stories, which I now see they got a hell of a good deal out of me. Um, Whereabouts was this in the UK? This was in Chester, up north, in the northwest of England. It was the Wrexham Leader, actually, was the paper. Then I decided, right, I'm, I'm going to try and be a journalist. They wouldn't take me on their training course because they said I didn't have a postgraduate journalism qualification. And I said to them, you clearly think my writing's good enough because you're publishing me now. Why do I? I've got a degree. I can clearly, I'm clearly capable. Ah, oh, but you need a postgrad. So I got a student loan. I packed up everything I owned into the back of my mum's Fiesta that she'd left behind because they went to live in Africa. And I drove to London and I lived in a bedsit. And I got my qualification and I worked for free for anyone who'd have me. But I carried on sort of, I, by then I was updating obviously the factual information and everything that I did, but I was writing about my adventures and I sold them to uh, 19 magazine this time and that was an entry point to get in to do work experience for them. I did work experience for Marie Claire. I basically knocked on doors and worked for free for anybody that would have me until I ended up uh, getting a job as a journalist and that sort of started my whole journey to where I am now. Now you're incredibly successful. Does it feel like you're incredibly successful or do you still feel you're winging it in some way? I'm completely winging it. I mean, in terms of do I feel like I'm good at my job? Yes, I do. And I, I love my job. I know I'm good at it. I get a kick out of it. It's the best job in the world. I love live TV. I love the adrenaline that it brings. I actually cope blooming well under pressure. I keep a very, very cool head and I, I punch the air and high five myself when I get off air and I know I've done a great job, not in a way that viewers would see, but I know that I've saved the show because things have gone hor horribly wrong. That nobody would know about. And no one would know. And I, I literally come off and I'm like, girl, you girl, you did good. I know I did a real good job. The real me so <laughs> comes out. But do I feel like I'm successful? No, there's a, it's so interesting. 
I still feel like that girl who headed down to London with everything, literally everything I owned on the back seat of a car. I lived in a bedsit that was the size of a disabled toilet. It was so small that my bed was a mattress on top of a cupboard. And I can remember really clearly, there's one of the bridges in London, I think it is Waterloo Bridge, and I had to drive to it uh, to get to my first journalism job. Which would be absolutely terrifying, by the way, driving in London driving for the first London. time Driving in London, exactly. Like what was great was my car was so battered and scratched, actually I didn't care. So it made me quite brave. I used to challenge these big fancy cars and I'd think, you clearly are bothered about scratching your car. I'm not, so you're going to get me that, give me that space. And I can remember I used to drive across this bridge watching the London skyline. And every now and again, I'd pull over, stop the car and get out and just stop and look at the view. And even now, that was in 1994. And even now, when I'm driving back over that bridge and even the skyline has changed, the, 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 the wheel is there, there's all the gherkin and the shard and all these great, incredible buildings. The London skyline has changed. I still get that thrill and think, I remember arriving here and now I'm here and I'm, I don't know, I'm on my way to host an event or I'm doing something and I'm in a fancy dress and I don't feel successful, but I just think that 24-year-old would never imagine that I'm doing what I'm doing now and I get a kick out of it. And also London like that is one of the most fabulous places to be in the world and I think when you come here as a young person or as an immigrant or as someone coming from another part of the country, you get the sense that you can do anything yeah. in a way. You and do. You, and to many, I don't know, can you do anything? Not really. There's a, sometimes there's spanners in the works, that, yeah. but you do get that sort of feeling. My dad says to me, he still says to me even now, Andrea, because he's very, very Scottish. It's like they left two minutes ago. He says, Andrea, there's times when I'm, I'm in London and there's all these people and I think, how the hell did it happen for you? And he's right. But I think when you're young, it doesn't occur to you to think, why not? You, you just think, well, why, why not me? When you're older, you think, why me? But when you're young, you think, why, why not? Because you've got this dream and this vision and you just keep going and banging on doors and, and working hard and doing the best that you can. And I think as a, as a young person who may be listening to this and thinking, oh God, I could never do it. Do you know what you can? But what you have to do is a, lose your sense of entitlement. You're not entitled to it. It's not just going to happen for you. But if you work really hard, stay true to yourself, get really good at making tea, <laughs> working for free, and putting yourself out there, and learn your skills, learn to be really good at what it is that you want to do, why not you? And also carry on doing it. You, you, know, you, you, wrote, you wrote when you weren't getting paid that much for it. If it was this day and age, you'd be a travel blogger. You'd yeah. be on Instagram. You'd be putting all that content out there. And hoping that you know something. The would medium come back has changed, but the desire is still the same. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of travel, so your parents went off to live in Africa. That must have affected you significantly. <laughs> I imagine you'd been there to visit them. So Many times. Where, yeah. Tell me about Africa and also where else you've been. Well, my parents moved to Kenya in 1993. Like I said, that's a story in itself because I mentioned when you when you when I went travelling back then, there was no email, mobile, or anything like that. So they moved house without me knowing. So I rang home and somebody else answered the phone, which is slightly upsetting when you're in New Zealand and you're ringing to speak to your parents. They'd basically, they'd had to move quicker than they thought and they'd, they were renting their house out. So they hadn't actually gone to Africa. They'd moved just down the road a little bit. So that was interesting. This man answered the phone saying, ah, yes, they said you would ring. Who the hell are you? What are you doing in my parents' kitchen? Um, they moved to Kenya then. 
Um, I was working in the shop and doing work experience for the for free for the local paper. But I'd applied for journalism school, so I had a, a sort of month to kill, where my lease was up on where I was living, and so I went out to Africa for a month and spent time with my parents. What was interesting was. That was great, and uh, it was lovely to see them, but they lived in the bush. They lived right out in the middle of nowhere, which is wonderful. But they lived, when my parents moved to Africa, they lived near a place that's called Kakamega. Now, Kakamega is very famous for its forest, which is filled with monkeys, and people come from all around the world to go and see this place. So I'd been out visiting them, and it was great, and, you know, there was, it was lovely having the sunshine and everything else, but I got a little bit bored. So there was a, a mission hospital nearby where there was uh, people from all around the world come to work. And this young guy had come out to visit his girlfriend who was a nurse. And he was a bit bored as well. Now we'd never met each other before. We had no interest in each other. It completely wasn't that. So I said to him, why don't we try and go and see if we can go and see this forest and see the monkeys? So we hitchhiked. My parents were appalled. What the hell are you doing? Why don't you go hitchhiking in Africa? I said, Dad, I've been traveling it'll be completely fine I'm with this guy who I've barely met but it'll be totally fine <laughs> and we basically we we got to the main road and we stuck our thumbs out we had a little rucksack each and we hailed a matatu now matatu is this it's like a kind of Datsun truck where any and everything of human or animal form will jump onto this thing and you pay your money and you head off to wherever you're going and it is it's very much a part of the culture in, in Africa, and it was brilliant. We hailed a matatu, and everybody looked at us like we were stark staring mad. And we jumped on, and it was great, and we just said we wanted to go to Kakamega. They took us to the little village that is nearby. We had some samosas from the marketplace, and then we flagged another bus that was heading near to the forest, and we walked the last bit to get in. We found a lodge, which is basically it was where you could camp for the night. It was up in the treetops which was wonderful. We set ourselves up for the, for, the, for the night, that was great, and then we found a local guide, and we had a walking tour of the forest, which is a wonderful thing to do, and if, any, if you ever get the chance to go to Kenya, please visit Kakamega Forest, there are spider monkeys, there are all sorts of things. That was great. We headed back, we'd packed up with some bits and bobs to eat, settled down for the night, but the next day, we realized we didn't have any way of getting out, so we had to try and walk out of the forest. Thankfully, there was a bin truck going by, so we hitched a ride on the back of a bin lorry coming out of Kakamega Forest. Uh, they let him stand on the back. For me, they were going, first class, you must travel first class. So I sat in the front of the driver. We traveled out of Kakamega Forest on a bin lorry. Again, they took us to the local sort of town. We hitched another Matatu ride, got back to near where the factory was. My dad worked and then walked the last way in. It was only... 24-ish hours that we were away but for me it was really important to still have an adventure and that that hasn't left me every now and again I like to kind of go off grid a little bit and and still see see the world not just in a nice clean way which don't get me wrong I love seeing the world in a five-star hotel who doesn't but I also like to kind of step off the track a little bit and just have a, have a little glimpse of what a country is really like. And can you do that now you've got kids? I was talking about this the other day. My son is nearly 17 and he lives almost a virtual world like teenagers do now. So obviously he plays video games, he's online with his friends and all this sort of stuff. But he's never, and he's been on holiday with us, but he's never been off grid. 
So one of the things I think I'd like to do is not only encourage him to go on a gap year, maybe as I did after his qualifications, whatever it is he wants to do, but maybe take his mum. Yes. <laughs> I think I could That's do that. That's such a good idea. That's such I a good I, idea. I could do that. You See, know. The time seems to have changed. I mean, I was like you. I, I grew up abroad in Spain and my parents, are, my dad is an Indian Fijian, so I was a child of the colonies of indentured mm. labour, which you might know from your uh, dissertation yeah. that you specialised in at university. But we seem to have that sort of a greater confidence in travelling on our own, maybe a greater level of freedom, maybe a, a, a lesser uh, knowledge of the, the fact that things can go wrong, maybe a, a greater level of independence than kids do these days. I think because we grew up in a, a, a very, very different environment where, you know, you went outside until the sun went down. You know, as long as you were back in time for tea, it was fine. You didn't have your phone with you. There wasn't such a thing as a, a phone was a thing that sat in the hall with a curly wire. Yes. And I think we trusted our children to look after themselves a lot more. We gave them the tools and said, don't talk to strangers or, you know, make sure that you're, you're polite yet firm. You know, make sure you look after yourself. Whereas now we're constantly giving our children a safety net. I'm not a helicopter parent. Uh, for me, I'm doing a great job if I, I love my children. They know I have got their back. But it is my job to give them, to facilitate them with everything that they need so that they don't need me anymore. And I was talking about this with my son the other day. And I said, you know, he was grumbling over, he, he's just finished his GCSEs and, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't got a job or anything like that. He did have a job washing dishes, but then he lost that because they gave it to an adult rather than a teenager. So I basically make him wash cars for pocket money. Uh, and I said to him, you might think I'm really tough. He wanted to take a girl on a date, so I made him wash a load of cars until he got enough money. And basically, he got going right, and we checked it first. He's, we're not doing him any favors. And I said, my, you might think this is really hard, but my job is to make sure you understand what real life is like. And in real life, no one will just give you money to go on a date. If you want something, you have to work for it. And it can mean getting hot, dirty, sweaty, and uncomfortable, and doing something you don't want to do. And I think if we can encourage our kids to get out into the real world, not the virtual world, you will scuff your knees, you will get bruised, it will be hard, but actually it feels so much better because of it. And the kind of sanitized virtual world that they live in doesn't bring the, the feeling of joy and accomplishment and satisfaction that you get when you've, you've overcome an obstacle. And the only way you can overcome, a, overcome an obstacle is by coming up against it. So that's what we have to let them do. There's a lovely saying about children which, which says something like, give them roots, yet also give them wings. I love that. I love that. And I think as parents, that's, what we, we, that's all that we can try and do. I've raised my children to be polite, well-mannered, appreciative, and hardworking. They don't take anything for granted, because as soon as I get a sniff that anything is being taken for granted, or that they are taking the mickey in some kind of way, my job is to bring them down a peg or two. Mm. And then your Trinidad side just came out again. It I love it. I absolutely love it. Before we go, I know you're short of time with you, but tell me very quickly about your book. My book is called Confessions of a Menopausal Woman, and it came about because I had to have a hysterectomy in 2016. And uh, because I work in TV, I had to explain why I was going to have time off air. Within 48 hours, 10,000 women had got in touch with me. And it switched my mindset from thinking, I don't think I want to talk about this as a deeply personal issue, to realizing that if, one, it's out there. I can't pretend that it's not out there. People know why I'm off work. But also, if that many women are needing to talk and, and needing information, 
why on earth am I being yet another one of those people that is refusing to talk about something that half the population is going through? So I flipped it completely on its head and started writing. I wrote the book from scratch, at home, in my kitchen, mainly in my pajamas. It's brutally honest, it's fi very funny, it's emotional, but it's incredibly raw and real. And for me, it's an opportunity to tackle the menopause sort of face on, but with a sense of humor, but also an arm around you, if that makes sense, because that's what a friend does. It's the kind of book that you would read as if a friend is talking to you. It will give a lot of information as to how to look out for signs if you're going through the menopause, things that you can help yourself if you are going through the menopause, but also make you feel really good about yourself. Because trust me, my experience was hideous and yours cannot be as bad as mine. And yet I am still laughing. And you're a great poster girl for the menopause because you look fabulous. You know, you're full of energy, at least, you know, for parts of the day. Part Not of the, the day. day. We don't see at home, but <laughs> I, heard, I heard this, um, someone, someone like Caitlin Moran who said, that she, when she does a presentation, it might not have been her, but let's quote her right. When she does a presentation in t to a room full of women, you know, she'll look, be looking at the women and thinking how much shit we have to put up with with our hormones. You know, there'll be people there that are bleeding, that are exhausted, that have dosed up on loads of medication, that have endometriosis like you did, that are going through the menopause and all these things. And we just have to get on with it and mm. get on with everything that everyone else is doing, even yeah. though we might be feeling terrible. Absolutely dreadful, yeah. This is why I decided to actually, hell no, I'm not going to keep quiet about this. I'm wearing a t-shirt that's emblazoned with the words, this girl is on fire. This is a website that I've set up and basically what it does is it carries on the conversation that I start in the book because I thought I've engaged so many women to find out what it is they want to talk about and I wanted to keep that conversation going. And the reason I called it This Girl is on Fire, one, it's a play on words because it's blushes. about the hot flushes <laughs> yes. and the menopause, but also it is exactly what you just said. Women are incredible. They are on fire. They are amazing. The fact that half the population will go through everything that you have just listed and that they will turn up on time. They will do amazingly well at their jobs. They'll raise their families. They will support their partners all whilst going through all of that. Women are fabulous. And if I didn't hold my hand up and go, do you know what? Actually, we're all great and we're all going through this and we need to be celebrated, not hidden away in dark rooms and go through something that is unmentionable because it makes people feel uncomfortable. Actually, we need to pat ourselves very, very firmly on the back and just say, do you know, girlfriend, you're, you are fabulous. The fact that you have even got out the door this morning, you are great. The fact that I'm even here today, I had one of those blooming awful nights where I had night sweats all nights and then I get insomnia sometimes to do with, with the menopause. I was, at half past five this morning, I was raging. There was language coming out of my mouth that my mother should never hear. <laughs> and yet, here I am, and I'm fine. And I am exactly like every other woman who'll be listening to this today, because it's just what we do. It is. I've had thyroid disease, miscarriages, endometriosis, and now in about a few years' time, it'll be the menopause. Yay! Just something else to look forward to. Thank God for that. <laughs> my very last question, it's about music, because I always think that music and travel go very much hand in hand. And one day I'll be able to afford to play music on this podcast, and I'd like to revisit it and play uh, the song you're about to choose. However, if I had to ask you one for one song that reminds you of a special time or moment abroad or when you were traveling, a special moment or experience, what would that song be? D can it be more than one? Yeah, why not? Okay, you're 100% right at how important music is. 
for me at the moment, every time I hear the song, This Girl Is On Fire, it, it makes me cry because it's such a powerful anthem and it sums up everything that I'm trying to do. So there's that song. Going back a, a little while, The Climb by Miley Cyrus. Now, it's not very often you'll hear a menopausal woman use Miley Cyrus as a point of reference, but if you listen to the words of The Climb, they absolutely sum up what women do every single day. There's, there's a line in it where it talks about, you know, it's not about how fast you get there. It's not about what's on the other side. It's all about the climb. And look, I've got goosebumps. My hair is literally standing on end. That's what we do every, other, every day. And I think if we focus on, oh, but now I'm this age and I'm over the hill, but actually what if you get to the top and it's this amazing plateau? And this is where you are at your best, at your peak, and the peak lasts for the rest of your life. That is what we could be facing. So rather than seeing the menopause as something that is this dreadful thing, it could be the start of something wonderful. And finally, to wrap up, a song that reminds me of traveling, it's Crowded House, Weather With You. Oh, it's amazing. Because not only did it come out at that time, and I bought it in a tape in Bangkok in a little market, but it's a song that makes perfect sense when you talk about how you're feeling because no matter where you are and how you're feeling whether your difficult times that you've mentioned difficult times that women go through everywhere you go you take the weather with you so you can either decide to make it sunny or you can settle under a rain cloud and for me i decide to make it sunny every day and that's why i love that song Thank you so much, Andrea McLean, for coming on the Big Travel Podcast and for being so utterly fabulous. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, may I also suggest you listen to episode three, Lucy Siegel from BBC One's The One Show, and episode 11, Dame Helena Morrissey. And join us for a new episode every Tuesday. Yeah.